and welcome to Vermont Ed Reads Books by, for, and with Vermont Educators. Today on the show, we welcome Mike McCree, who's here to talk about Nora Samaran's Turn This World Inside Out, The Emergence of Nurturance Culture. How do you hold harm and harmony together in the same space, in a way that protects and honors the needs of all students to feel safe and loved? How do you talk about the needs of those students who feel marginalized, even if we'd identify them as coming from wide intersections of privilege? And how do you talk about the needs of straight, white, male, cisgendered students without centering their needs in a culture that marginalizes the needs of, well, absolutely everybody else? Nora Samaran has some answers, as does Mike McGree. We here on the show love talking with smart, compassionate people. And if you do too, and we hope you do, this is the episode for you. Let's chat. Thank you for joining me, Mike. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. It's my pleasure to be here. My name is Mike McGrath. I'm the Assistant Executive Director at the Vermont Principals Association. And my job includes all different kinds of things, uh, mostly uh, supporting principals in many different ways. Um, the professional learning side of things, uh, the mentorship, uh, and a host of other things at at the VPA. And I'm a former high school principal at Montpelier High School. Uh, Did four years there, the previous four years there. And then I spent six years in Franklin Northeast in that supervisory union as a school counselor and a middle school principal. You bring a ton of expertise and really relevant expertise to this book, Turn This World Inside Out, which you suggested to me and I was really excited to read. Um, But before we jump into that, I wonder if you might share what you're reading right now. What's on your bedside table. I suspect there might be some books for little ones on that stack. Yeah. um, Yeah, thanks. Uh, This book was recommended to me by my dear friend, confidant and soul leader, um, Sylvia Fagan, uh, who is uh, a teacher in the Montpelier School District and among many other things. And when she recommends something to me, I I pay close attention. So I want to thank Sylvia for this recommendation and her continued support through some really hard things, uh, working together and um, just just being a great uh, person for me to to turn to and to bounce things off of and to learn with. So thank you, Sylvia. And, you know, the books that I've been reading aside from this um, are connected to four-year-olds and six-year-olds. I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old. And being at home so much, uh, we started reading chapter books. And so the books that I've read most recently um, are Gary Paulson books. My boys were super, super interested in reading Hatchet and then Brian's Winter. And we also read Dog Song, um, which is a very uh, interesting and sort of poetic book. And they hung in there. Um, You know, Gary Paulson does a a great job of engaging kids, even four-year-olds, soon to be five. And they have tons of questions and it comes up all the time in their language. I mean, just last night they were talking about the size of a moose and you know, whether or not, uh, you know, the moose would charge them and all, all different kinds of things um, that those books have been great for shaping their connection to, to nature. This brings me so much joy. You have no idea what I would give to have a four-year-old sit on my lap and let me read to them. Like, I give a lot. Yeah, it's real good. And we try not to take it for granted. Um, And we do a lot of it. And you know, every every single day and every single night, um, we read and we we soak that up. And, um, you know, both my wife and my wife has been great about bringing books in from uh, the library, our our South Burlington library does a fantastic job. And uh, we uh, are missing that for sure. Um, You know, we we were picking up 20, 30 books a a week. So um, we, we miss that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, you know, I'm not going to be able to resist and I'm going to send you some titles to be read to four and six year old boys later on. (laughs) 
Um, so let's get to this book. And I, I wonder, this book opens in a really interesting way with a description of a school, um, a Canadian school. And I, I, I wonder if we could set the stage for our listeners by reading um, pages one, two, onto the top of three, just to give them a sense of the ideal this book is shooting towards. Sure, glad to. And I'll try not to make any extra noise turning the pages. Um, so uh, the title of this first chapter is Introduction. Nurturance culture means holding the circle. At Windsor House, a free school in Coast Salish territories, also known as Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, every child has an internal map of how harm is handled in their school community. In this school, the only public democratic school in North America and one of the longest running brick and mortar free schools in the world, any student who ex experiences harm can write up the other person who they feel harmed them. When someone is written up, they're required to go to what the school calls justice council, which is a circle of their peers who then help repair the harm. Going to that circle is not an option. It is a requirement for anyone who wants to be a member of the school community. This is especially notable because it is one of the only concrete requirements at a public accessible democratic school that has almost no coercion or compelling of any other kind. In the free school system, deeply invested in beliefs about autonomy and keeping kids whole, if a student wants to skateboard or paint all day, that is what they do. In a community so steeped in an ethic of consent and self-determination with so few kids of ordinary, everyday compelling in place compared to regular schools, I was curious about how this requirement worked. Was what is the relationship, I wondered, between the commitment to the individual autonomy that is such a dearly held value of the school and this justice council that can compel students to repair harm? At the beach one day, while watching kids pull up seaweed and pile it into stacks, I asked my close friend's 12-year-old son, who goes to the school, what happens if a kid who gets written up doesn't come to council? He barely skipped a beat before he answered, as though it was the most natural thing in the world. If someone doesn't go to council, council goes to them. A day later, I asked my friend's nine-year-old daughter, who had not heard my earlier conversation, the same question. She too is a student in the school. I got the same answer. She barely paused in her playing, glanced up and said, council goes to them, as though this was the obvious answer to a silly adult question, and then immediately resumed her game. When their answers, what their answers say to me is that these kids experience justice council as self-evident and ordinary. When you hurt someone, you get called to council and you have to go. You are expected to make it right. This concrete practical structure and the kids' regular use of it for handling harms, large and small, has, it seems to me, hardwired an ethical framing for a functioning everyday model of interdependence into their assumptions about how the world just is, how reality works, and how human beings obviously get along. Thanks for that. That was beautiful. I, um, something that struck me in your reading was this uh, notion, this quote, a map of how harm is handled. And I wonder, do you think our, the schools that you've worked in has ha have had a clear map of how harm is handled? Um, yeah, it's a really deep and <laughs> rich question. It's hard to know where to begin. Um, I think the short answer is no. Um, I think one of the most difficult jobs of it, it fell to me as school counselor more than you might expect and uh, certainly as middle school principal and definitely as high school principal as well to sort of be the judge and jury of harm um, and anyone who's ever worked with middle schoolers or high schoolers um, or people knows that harm happens all the time. It's part of growth, it's part of relational challenges, it's part of friendship, it's part of uh, everything that we do. And uh, I think that there is a real legal framework around it for schools, which is well-intentioned and 
certainly better than when I was in high school or middle school, where, you know, the only kind of solution to harm that happened was, you know, suck it up or deal with it yourself or ignore that kid or duck and cover kind of, right? Um, kind of like school of hard knocks. I mean, nobody would have ever even dreamed of saying to anyone, hey, you know, that kid slammed me up against the locker or, um, you know, we had a kid that kept throwing kids down the stairs. Um, and no one would have ever dreamed of bringing that up to an adult. And so I think it's better than that. Um, and we, we have the HHB, you know, as the, as the school folks know, hazing, harassment, and bullying law which is really dense. It's really cumbersome for administrators um, to navigate and uh, quite restrictive in its nature. Um, it comes with very specific procedures, um, which can be helpful um, to not sort of rush to judgment, to get a full picture as best you can, to interview everybody involved. Um, and then it goes along with very, uh, Kind of stodgy form letters that end up going out to parents of the potential victims and the potential perpetrators and the whole thing you know oftentimes takes like a whole week you know for somebody who um you know called somebody a name at lunch uh so that is feels pretty unnatural a lot of times um and and can be very high stakes because depending on the students and families involved they could really sort of want uh, justice, the hammer to fall, um, or they might really think that this is a total waste of time and like kids need to just get over it and schools treat kids with kid gloves now. Or more, most often, uh, well, my experience was that, you know, my, my sweet angel didn't do it that, you know, the school is wrong. You've got this wrong. You, you don't understand. Um, yeah. What, what I'm hearing from you and what I'm wondering about, what I'm thinking about is that not only is the map maybe unclear, but in this store, in this, um, in this account of the school in Canada, the author um, sort of infers that it's a part of a larger community that also has these beliefs. And so I'm thinking about how um, since Trump has become president, maybe even slightly before, uh, the numbers of um, uh, racial harassment happening in schools have increased, right? Southern Poverty Law Center um, has done some studies on that and found that racial slurs are up and racial bullying is up at schools. And so it makes me think about how, even if you have a really clear map of how harm is handled in your school, if the broader culture has a very different map or a conflicting map, that's problematic, right? Like that un undermines the goals of the school. Yeah, for sure. I think that there are many examples and I've been part of systems that worked really hard to be very explicit about what was acceptable and what was unacceptable. And then not only did kids know where those boundaries were, they knew what we were going to do when those boundaries were crossed. Um, and so I think that that clarity can be established in a school. And I think that most of our schools work really hard to establish those things. Um, the question is whether or not the school's boundaries and way of handling it matches both, you know, on the victim side and on the perpetrator side of the harms, family ethic and the broader culture. And if it doesn't, which oftentimes I think it doesn't, um, then that internal map that the author is talking about here in this book um, is different for people or really unexplored, or sometimes it feels like polar opposites of, of how, um, of where, what that map says, if it says anything at all. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, your question is, you know, do we have that? internal map of how harm is handled people might have them but they don't have the same one um and most often i think that we really don't even have an articulated one in most of our home systems or schools um that are inclusive 
Yeah, this text seems to be driving us toward an idea of what a map of how harm is handled, um, how to, in your language, um, face the challenge of holding victim and perpetrator in the same community. Um, this is what this whole book is about. The other piece that I really noticed in listening to you read the opening was this idea of interconnectedness. And I'm gonna read from page seven because this really struck me. Um, the reason that the structure works is because it recognizes that each person is already inherently part of a larger unbreakable web of connectedness and gives every member of the community the knowledge of how to mend that web on which human independence so fundamentally depends and the obligation to engage in that mending when called to do so. Right. And, you know, for me, hearing that, um, it's like a worldview, right? It's a worldview that your health and well-being is connected to mine and, and vice versa. And that that is a, a physiological reality as well as um, a, a lens in which to see the world and make decisions. And it runs... Uh, against what I think many, much of what our culture, our dominant culture, um, the patriarchy, white supremacy culture, um, says to us uh, in so, so many ways, right? And so this is, is, is a worldview that is sending a message that um, we, we don't often get uh, in all those subtle ways uh, as we move through uh, what it would be a typical experience uh, for a young American. This really spoke to me. I wondered, I don't know, I, I guess, I guess one of the things I think about all the time is how do we, how, is either about transitioning towards a culture that's more about interconnectedness and interdependence, or how do we hold the tension of connection and community and this like focus on personalization in the individual? Yeah, I think you can see that in those first couple of pages of like, you know, I think their example is somebody that skateboards or paints all day. So there's, there's a, a celebration of the individual's passions, um, contributions, uniqueness, while also knowing that that is part of a bigger system, not just human, I, I would propose, but, you know, earth. Um, that all of those things need to be in a symbiotic relationship. And, you know, your, your comments about, um, to, to me, and this is just my opinion, America might be sort of like the apex of like, you know, some people win, some people lose, like, uh, you know, the, everybody's just out, out for themselves and that's how it is. Um, I think our culture says that, I'm not sure that, our people always act that way. I, I think that America also sort of has a reputation of having really generous people and really uh, caring communities. Um, so there's, there's some interesting complexity there. But you have to add, my question would be, and I think we're sort of at this moment in history where it's like, where does that, where is, where does the collective stop? Does it stop in your town? Does it stop in your school? Does it stop at your state? Does it stop in your country, right? And then like, you know, ultimately maybe we can sort of zoom all the way out and be like, oh, it's just one thing. We're just all one thing. Um, and- It's I, the mycelium. I, We're all like linked by fungus. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I, I think you can really do a lot with the collective and we've seen a lot like with um, nationalism um, and, and you can really sort of get people together and, and unite it. And that feels good to be, have identity and this is who we are and we're the tigers or we're the lions or whatever. Um, and that's great for community, but is it sort of, can, is a shortcut way of doing that is by having a common enemy and how healthy is that? Yeah, so creating belonging at the expense of somebody else's belonging. Exactly. So um, one of the things I really want to dive into with you, uh, which is coming to me just now, is this idea of uh, relationships and relationality and how do we um, 
work in schools to help kids build better relationships, learn the skills they need to build better relationships. And I think that a lot of folks would call this soft skills and doesn't belong in schools. And yet, I think this book and many things uh, in our world right now are telling us that, that more than ever, kids need to know how to build strong relationships so that they are more resilient, so that, um, so that they can collaborate with each other, so that they can um, uh, have better self-esteem, which leads to better academic scores. And so I'm wondering about this tension between academics and this sort of soft skills of social-emotional learning. Yeah, I mean, folks that have been around me in the last uh, decade, I guess, know that um, one of the things that I feel like is true about education right now in this time and space in the world is that we are not, meaning schools, are not the holders of information. We're just not. Um, the internet has given everyone as much information as possible. We never even could have dreamed at how much information would be at our fingertips, literally. Um, and so, you know, if we're not the holders of content, then what are we? And I would say that we need to help people make meaning of content. We need to help them be critical consumers of content. We need to help them be producers, right? And not just consumers. Um, and uh, we need to help them develop interpersonal skills and, and those soft skills because if we don't, um, they won't develop otherwise. And it's, it's more important than ever because you're able to get so much content in so many other ways and because we are more isolated than ever. You know, the, the echo chamber of the internet and, um, you know, the school re refusal rates going way, way up because anxiety rates way, way up for our youth. And I think part of that is because they don't have as much practice navigating um, social dynamics and it is easier than ever to just ignore them. When something doesn't go well, it's like, oh, well, like I'm just going to go into my phone and listen to people who agree with me or I'm going to just um, stay in my room um, and live a pretty isolated uh, life. And we know that while that might um, ping all kinds of dopamine in the brain, um, and it, it's actually leads to depression and anxiety and unhappiness um, and isn't fair to, to let young people grow up that way and not experience uh, serotonin, um, a much healthier release of endorphins into the brain um, with long term relationships, with the satisfaction of a job well done. Um, with, you know, pushing through hard things and, and hard moments and difficult conversations to come out the other side stronger and healthier. That was really powerful. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, you, um, many people who know your name will know you uh, worked at Montpelier High School to push through hard things. That seems really related to a lot of the content on this book, which is that you were the first uh, high school in the country, I believe, to fly the Black Lives Matter flag. I wonder if you could talk about that in relation to what did your kids push through and how did you um, and your faculty help support them? Maybe how do kids help support the faculty? I'm not sure. And the community in order to push through, do really hard things in that way. I mean, first and foremost, like that was students. Um, it continues to be students and their strength and bravery is something that has changed my life forever and is one of the most important things that I have ever gone through and likely ever will. Um, and I'm so grateful to those young people and as individuals and collectively for being uh, teachers to me and to having um, a real connection um, that I think will probably last a, a, a lifetime. Um, and for the adults in that community, uh, being willing to, to take that risk, and I, I mean an emotional risk, a vulnerability risk, uh, and they did so 
almost without hesitation and 100% of the faculty, maybe, I mean, I'm sure some people had some misgiving. We, we all probably did. But in faculty meetings, nobody stood up and said, don't do this or we're not doing this. Every single person, which to me is just incredible. And it, it, it felt um, like maybe a moment in time. You know, like we, sometimes you can sort of feel like I'm, I'm living through a moment in history. And the whole time I was thinking, it was like, don't mess this up. <laughs> like, don't mess it up. You know, like for whatever reason, um, I was part of that and uh, had voice in that moment. And it felt like it just needed to happen for this country and for our local community. And the students were absolutely just thinking about our high school and our town. Um, I had the sense that, okay, this might be a, a big deal. Um, and it, it turned into a, a pretty big deal. Um, and so, you know, for me, it, it brings up all kinds of layers and complexity and feelings. Um, so I've already <laughs> lost the thread on your question. Can you, can you give it to me again? I'd, I'd love to try again. No, it's great. I love your answer. But I was thinking about how that work that students did resulted in serotonin not a dopamine rush but like that's the authentic work that leads you to feel good and efficacious in the long run as opposed to you know sort of uh i'm not even going to do this well of w winning around a fortnight right and so like that big rush of serotonin right, right. that your right. whole um community got to feel and that sense of uh, collective efficacy feels really powerful um, and feels like what you were saying about um, the importance of the social emotional learning and the soft skills, the um, relational piece that you were highlighting that kids need in addition to being able to navigate content. Right. Um, yeah. Thank you for the redirect. It, yeah, it was super difficult and um, messy and uncomfortable and a lot of times when those feelings come up people feel like this must be the wrong way because i don't feel good i don't feel happy i don't feel uh, safe even right and when those feelings come up a lot of times it can be like wrong 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 just like maintain the status quo because this feels uh this feels yucky or uh disruptive and so, you know, the idea that it was like, oh, fun, like, you know, Montpelier High School is having a great time down there together is just not the case. Um, I think that there were moments where, particularly for those students that had taken such a massive risk and had worked so hard and gone so deep into their psyches and their cultures um to help guide us they were walking on air in some moments right like that that day um when the flag was up and the state police were there supporting us and our city police were there and the legislators were there and the news was there and our community was there and every almost every single kid came out um around that flagpole that february morning the kids who had made that happen we're absolutely experiencing the serotonin that comes with, you know, doing something that is meaningful, that is connected to their values and their ethics, that they worked really hard for, that they um, pushed through difficult moments and frustrations and fear for, and, and sort of came out the other side. It's not to say it was like, you know, flag up, no problems. Uh, it was really just the beginning. And, and we, we said that as, as it was happening. You know, it wasn't as if that was our first step. It also certainly was not our last step. I, I would say like if you had to say there were 10 steps <laughs> somehow um, to building an equitable school system um, that's anti-racist, that was probably like step three. Um, and it was a symbol of a commitment to continue to, to work on that. 
I love everything you just said about that. I think about um, both the ongoing nature of anti-racist work, of community building work, of equity work, right? Like we're not going to see the end of it. It's an ongoing journey. I love that you said that. And then I'm also thinking a lot about, um, <laughs> I don't know, you just made me think about like, uh, some of my most joyful experiences were not necessarily joyful in the moment, right? Like camping trips where the tent gets soaking wet and the story's great later, or really long backpacking yeah. trips where you're having yeah. to ford a river because the bridge washed out. Or um, I think about people who run marathons or, right? And like, I love, I love that phrase around this house. We use the phrase, we can do hard things. But sometimes what I forget is not only can we do hard things, but like hard things are the things that end up being our joys, our biggest joys and our biggest, um, um, our most satisfying life moments. So this is a really good reminder because this book is asking us to do really hard things um, by confronting our own bias and privilege and um, sort of um, owning when we've caused harm, right? And um, so thanks for that. Another part of this book that I think is really relevant to schools, although it doesn't talk about schools at all, is this whole section on attachment theory. It's pages 22 to about 27. And really, um, our author, uh, Nora Samaran, is talking about attachment theory to talk a little bit about um, sexual violence. But I found myself really reading and rereading this section on attachment because she says basically that 50% of the population, um, only 50% of the population has a secure attachment style. And then she goes into some other attachment styles and she talks about the brain science of it and about how those years, birth to three, create our limbic system, that that's where our limbic system is developed. And that she goes on, to, she talks on and on about this. I just was really, I want to look more into attachment um, theory. You probably know a lot more than I do about attachment theory, but she says, um, uh, whatever your attachment style, she says, limbic responses happen very, very fast below the conscious level and often outside of language. So these instantaneous responses we have when we feel threatened or when we feel like um, closeness is um, offered or gonna be withheld that we can't even put words to. And I'm thinking about how often those limbic responses happen in schools and how we as adults respond to them. And I, I don't know, it really struck me that some of my worst moments as an educator were in misinterpreting limbic responses from students. I mean, absolutely. I mean, the experience that maybe all educators have um, on a regular basis is a student that's displaying uh, a lot of anger, um, you know, uh, Calling, calling Mr. McGrath the F word, uh, definitely, definitely something that I've experienced. Um, and how, you know, that can be seen as uh, disrespectful. It can be seen as somebody that uh, doesn't belong in the community um, and needs to go away um, and is the problem or something like that. Or, you know, you can see that as someone that is really scared um, or somebody that is just doing what they know to do to protect themselves um, or, or to find agency or to find some semblance of, of power um, in an experience that might be uh, stripping them of all power. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that we are learning that as systems. It's a lot of work. It's, it's sort of faster and cheaper probably to just be like, yep, yeah, uh, you, you don't have executive functioning built um, or you know, you're not sort of fitting in with the cultural norms here, so goodbye. Um, and to just push them out of the community in whatever way, shape, or form that that happens. It happens in lots of different ways, depending on what developmental level you're at and where you are. Um, 
it's more work to earn a student's respect, um, to build a relationship, to uh, push through years of poor attachment, um, and to, you know, just, I always think about it as like, you like a scale right like um like an old timey scale <laughs> like you've got weights on one side and weights on the other and somebody that has a really poor attachment their scale of negative attachment is so far down on one side i mean it has so much weight on that side that you know how many um instances of positive attachment positive relationships is it going to take before that scale comes to even or tips the other way. And so it can feel hopeless or like a waste of time um, for educators sometimes to be dropping things on the positive side of that relationship because they don't see a change or they don't see the difference um, sort of happen instantly. Um, and I, I felt I, I had to use that a lot for myself and encouraged you know, my colleagues to think about it that way too is, you just don't know when that scale is going to tip and we want to put as much on that side of the positive attachment and positive relationship as possible um, in really difficult situations. It feels to me like part of, I love that scale analogy and it feels to me like part of what you're saying. I, I often, when I teach collaborative practices, we spend a lot of time thinking about belonging and how we need to build belonging amongst a culture of belonging amongst uh, teachers as a community of learners in order to create the kind of spaces we need to in order to be brave right and to in order to confront our own biases um, our own um, assumptions about learners about each other about who can learn and who can't and so I think about the same is true in classrooms, right? We have to build strong cultures of belonging. And um, the kids who least feel like they belong need belonging the most and are often the hardest ones to reach and to have us to create a sense of belonging for because we as adults get, because we want shortcuts, we want it to be easy. And I, I've been thinking a lot about um, the classrooms I know that are working really well remotely. It's hard, right? But the classrooms where I see teachers and students holding on and, and um, doing pretty well are classes that have really strong relationships, have really well-developed sense of classroom belonging and community. And so I've been thinking a lot about how this book is really about belonging and how do we create belonging so we can do those hard things, so we can have those hard conversations, so we can disrupt um, systems of power and prejudice and, um, and uh, privilege. Yeah, and you know, I think there is a tension there that is named, you know, towards the end of the book, um, that how difficult it is to um, hold harm and harmony in tension with one another um, in community. And, you know, one of the things that I, I think is different with public school than would be in some other cases, a private school or um, a, a community where you get to pick and choose who stays and, and who goes, is that the public school is for everyone, not just students that are easy to get along with or might agree with um, your worldview. And I experienced several times as an administrator and as a school counselor um, where deep harm had been done. And maybe the person who had done the harm was a repeat offender and didn't, was not all that remorseful. And the victim um, or, or the person who had experienced the harm um, you know, wants that person, wants to be protected and they have the right to be protected and they have the right to come to school and not feel scared 
or not feel like they're going to be attacked verbally or otherwise. And so, you know, what, what do you do with that perpetrator, with the, with the person who's carrying around toxic energy and it splashes up on all kinds of people? Do you ostracize them, right? Do you come down really hard on them, um, scare them into following the rules? Or, you know, do you try to work with that person to help them understand the damage that they're doing to their community, to their peers, and ultimately to themselves, right? I mean, that's what the book's title is about. It's Turn This World Inside Out. And I think um what what the author um nora samaran is saying is it's turning yourself inside out right um and that we swim around in a culture of uh, toxic masculinity that expects people to be individualistic um to not have a full range of emotions to have um the the young men um be uh, unemotional to be loud to be tough to take what's theirs to to compete and uh that when we ask them not to it makes them feel like either the school is out of touch with reality like that's not my reality i am gonna have to fight i am gonna have to compete i like you know you're out of touch or, you know, causes this sort of deep um, questioning about everything they know and brings up all that, those feelings of shame and embarrassment, which are such big feelings that it's no surprise that they would, you know, move away from them. So, you know, to try to put a point on it is I am not interested in centering sort of cisgendered white male narratives at school. I mean, that's one of our biggest challenges and problems, right? Is we have done that forever and we need to have more voices centered. At the same time, those students need some of the most attention. They, they have the most unpacking to do. They have the most layers to, to work through. They need the most connections. They need the most relationships. And I, would, I had many students who come from marginalized communities or are marginalized communities say to me, how can you be friends with them? Like, why are you friendly to them in the hallway? And I felt like I had to be, spend twice as much as time with them. But it, I also, there's this tension of like, okay, then am I centering their story? So that's something that came up for a lot, a lot for me in this book. I saw that paradox everywhere in this book. And um, I think you're right. It For me, it really showed up in the masculinity chapter about um, how this woman, Nora Samaran, is like, I can't do this work with men because of the power and the relationships I've had with them in the past. And it, it reminded me that um, often in the past few years, and it's starting to shift when we would, um, in collaborative practices classes, when we would talk about race, people would say, oh, oh, but our school's mostly white, so we don't really need to deal with race. And um, and then I would have them read Allie Michaels, What White Children Need to Know About Race. But this book really gives me new language of it's actually white people. A, being white is a race. And B, like it's actually white people that need to do the work with white people to better understand um, sort of our our role as oppressors and to be able to digest that. Like, I think that's a hard sentence for people who are like, I'm not an oppressor, but we are as, as what I am as a white person. And, and so to be able to digest that and see what that means or the same for, for around toxic masculinity and rape culture in this book is that it's, it's, it's men that need to work with each other to talk about a new um, or a, um, or a rebirthed notion of masculinity that can sort of be tender and that can be attuned to the needs of others so that um, they're not doing harm. And I, I feel like um, we could say the same thing with cisgendered folks, right? Like that we need to be doing the work and there is this tension about, is that then centering those who already have power? And so I, I think that's definitely something I found myself 
noodling a lot in this book is like, um, how do you do that? And, and not, and not center privilege dominance. And I guess, so the question, that wasn't a question, but the question I'm going to follow up with is, um, so often what I'll hear from folks is, uh, but what about class? Class is the real determinant. And so I'm wondering for you, and I, you know, I can see this playing out in my own background, in my own childhood, and also in schools, that class, that there is this intersection of power, being white or male, and class that is nuanced. So I'm wondering about your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, one of the things I have seen this um, since the pandemic in Vermont is I've seen people that champion equity um, champion, continue to champion it and point to it. But I've also seen the concern about our students of lower economic status of limited means championed at the center of people with the most power. I've heard it, um, you know, in Senate ed, I've, I've heard it everywhere. I mean, and I think that that's interesting. It's interesting to me because I think it's more accessible for our dominant culture in Vermont, which is, you know, predominantly, obviously predominantly white. Um, and if you look at our governor's history, um, predominantly cisgendered white males. So if you just look at it from that lens, you know, why, why are we able to talk about inequities, financial inequities so comfortably right now? Um, and everyone, it's on everyone's mind and everybody's taking action on it as best they can. Um, and certainly raising it as a, as something that has been in focus and sharpened, uh, that focus is sharpened through this pandemic experience. Why? Why can we do that? And I, I think it's because it's accessible. I, I think that it's closer to people's um, life. Uh, either they have them themselves experienced poverty or uh, at some point in their lives or know a lot of people um, around that. And I, I think that it, it asks people to do less internal work um, that, you know, when you start to realize how racist uh, our, our, our society is, when you really start to see it, you know, when the rose colored glasses come off and you realize everything, everything we're doing is filled with bias um, and, and oppression. Uh, that's really overwhelming. And then you start to realize, like, I'm a part of that, right? Like, I'm part of that oppression. I am that oppression. And um, that's asking people to do some really uh, challenging work. And I, I think the same thing happens um, when we when we talk about misogyny. Um, and when we uh, talk about sexuality, right? I, it's, there's a lot of internal work. And there's something that it seems to me is more accessible about uh, classism. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure that I'm oversimplifying it and I apologize if I am, um, but I, I, I see that. And uh, so how do I you know, how does that play out? I think it can't be overlooked um, that a lot of times, you know, when we talk about, um, we talk to maybe take a cisgendered white male who's grown up in poverty and we tell them, look, you don't realize the privilege you're living with. This is a natural reaction that they're going to say, are you kidding? Privilege? You know how hard my life is? Like, there, there's not, I don't have any privilege here. You know, the people around me will cut me down instantly. You know, like I'm fighting out here. I'm scrapping and uh, nobody's giving me a thing. How can you say that I have privilege? And that is true. I mean, it's that that their lived experience is true, and they are um, oppressed uh, financially, um, and you know they don't have the health care that should be a human right, um, and all kinds of other things. And so that it, those things don't have to be opposed to one another. They both can be true. And I, I think there's something about 
our climate and culture that wants things to be one way or another and, and not, and we're not able to hold polarities in tension with one another um, without some practice and with some intentionality of like, oh, maybe it's both and. You're making me think, um, thank you for that. You're making me think about um, Rebecca Holcomb a few years back at a Roland conference was talking about curb cuts. Do you remember that? And she's talking about how um, uh, before there were curb cuts that allowed wheelchairs to have access to sidewalks um, and make it easy for folks to get around, um, that uh, a group of disabled activists went out and poured the first curb cut. And um, what they found over time is that curb cuts aren't just good for disabled people, but they're also good for people with strollers and uh, for people who um, maybe have vision problems and can't see where it goes. And for all of us, all of us benefit from curb cuts. And so there's a section on page 53 that really made sense to me and makes sense for that young man you were talking about who maybe grew up poor and was like, um, wait, what? I don't have any privilege, look around. And um, and, and it says um, at the top of page 53, cis people perform their gender as much as trans folks do. Putting transness at the center of our understanding of gender makes apparent that cisness has also always been complicated. And I, I've known for a long time and thought a lot for a long time about how um, fighting homophobia and transphobia actually makes all of us safer because we can all more safely be ourselves in our bodies and in our skin, right? Like we don't feel the need to conform to um, gender binaries as much. And we can be more of who we essentially are. And yet, why do we find that so threatening? That, and that's sort of one of the paradoxes is that something that would be good for all of us, sometimes we can't act on because of fear of the other. Yeah, I had that same line underlined. Um... And one of the, just to circle back to um, my personal experience with sort of extreme hate uh, with the raising of a Black Lives Matter flag where the white nationalists, you know, had my name circled there for a minute. And uh, I was getting, you know, a lot of very serious hate email and mail um, and phone calls and, you know, trolls on online and that kind of thing. and it's so naive of me because, um, you know, people without as much privilege as me, people who are putting themselves out there in their daily lives, just in their natural existence and, um, and folks that are fighting for justice experience this every single day, um, their whole lives. But, but for me, um, I was struck by how often the hate overlapped really quickly. Um, that, you know, I wasn't just, um, you know, somebody that was supporting uh, my young students of color um, and was anti-racist, hopefully, uh, <laughs> I was being called that, um, you know, uh, but immediately I was weak, right? Um, and I was uh, lots of other slurs that implied that I was um, gay, right? And then there's even like leaps to like, oh, he's Jewish, right? And so like, it just got, it just started to sort of morph into all of, all of these things that were not cisgendered white male that were used as a way to scare me, I guess, or to insult me. Um, and the, the gender piece of it and the sexuality piece of it was very strong, very strong. In almost all of the comments, um, they were explicitly sexual in nature um, and would, you know, be sort of expressing that that was weakness. Um, and you're right, uh, as a cisgendered white male experiencing the apex of privilege in America with citizenship and everything, it's also true that performing um, my express gender is absolutely part of the deal. And I couldn't tell you how many times as, you know, a somewhat more emotional uh, <laughs> young man than some of my peers that I would, I would have to sort of like, oh, you know, like 
pull back from that because it seemed too soft or um, did my voice just uh, break a little bit or did it just sound, did that sound gay? And, and immediately, immediately being a policed uh, by my peers in a very toxic way. Um, and I think most uh, young white men that I know um, have grown up that way. And, you know, why is it that that is just uh, so unacceptable? And I think that there's been some evolution in that amongst our young people. I think it's better than when I was a kid. And I'm sure it depends on the community. And I'm sure there's still, we still have a long, I know we still have a long, long ways to go. But, um, you know, that expression of, of gender, um, and if we could, center, you know, as she writes uh, on page 52, um, center uh, trans, she said transness, um, that's going to be uh, freeing for everybody. That was really a paradigm shift for me, um, is to put that at the center and not just to sort of give it a nod, right? And so, um, there's so much more to talk about in this book, Mike, but I, I sort of want to go to this hopeful place, if that's okay. There, there are a couple of things in our time left that I really want to get to. So many things. Um, on page 76, there's this great story from um, this person named, should I just have to find it? Okay. On page 76, um, our author, Nora, is in um, conversation with Ruby Smith-Diaz, who was born to Chilean and Jamaican parents in Edmonton, and she's an arts-based anti-oppression facilitator, etc. And she talks about this project she does with kids that just, like, rang my bell. It's called the Afrofuturism Trading Cards, and she has kids create them, and they're based in joy. Um, she says, we do character sketches and the youth imagine that they are living in a time that is free of racism, homophobia, classism, and all of the other oppressions that exist today. We ask what it would look like if we were truly free and unafraid to be who we are. She goes on a little bit more about that. And I thought, what a fabulous project. Like, how wonderful to do that. And um, I want to connect it. I want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about... Um, what I think is sort of the a futurism idealistic card for schools. Um, at the top of page 37, I, I circled this uh, paragraph and I wrote all of this exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And it says, the reward of creating safe bonds is that in these places of trust, a warm glow of meaning and purpose emerges. An inner circle of trust and vulnerability allows movement and rest. It lets the bees come and go from the hive. It creates shelters of chosen family and beloved community from which action, challenges to racism, sexism, institutional violence can arise. A safety net to catch each other's bodies and souls, the foundation that allows risks. That to me is this, um, what could schools look like if we were all free? That to me is like the, the future card I would create for what I want schooling to look like in this country. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I would underscore that that is not where we are. Um, and so my optimism is paired with um concern that the some of the most toxic stuff is what we need to go towards and that is that is different than and, and this book does a great job of exploring how that's possible to hold um our the the victims and, and the people who are experiencing harm safe and to center their experience and to and their story and to not turn our back 
on those who are doing the harm. And that is difficult. I think it's quite difficult. And um, I learned from a student this phrase, and I'm not sure where she got it, but she said, I'm not just interested in calling out, I'm interested in calling in. And in public schools, I think that that is an obligation legally, but also in community. We don't get to just say, you know what, that person is so different than me that I'm just gonna go over here. Um, I don't don't like the things that they like, so I don't get them um, and I'm just gonna ignore them. And if they break the rules of our community, then they need to be uh, ostracized, they need to be publicly humiliated, and they need to be gone. And that doesn't work for me. That would be easier. I sort of, I think maybe sometimes we wish that was the case, but to me it's the opposite. And the hope for me lies there, that we run towards that pain. We run towards that complexity and those feelings of shame and embarrassment and disregard and, you know, the, the um, tossing away of the attempts of, of the community to bring to circle, to, to bring together. Um, and that is not um, something that uh, is easy to get people excited about. Um, but I think that that's the, tr- that's the truth for me, that that is the work that to be done um, and to do that hard thing um, and to know that it's not always going to go well. Um, and I think that, you know, this book sort of concludes that way, right? That we, you sort of put, you put that energy on that side of the scale. Um, as, as she wrote, Uh, Maybe it was someone that she was interviewing right at the end. You know, maybe we laid the foundation for bigger work later on. I started thinking about these as messy successes in a context where so many of us are still learning to build and be in community. This stuff can be transformative too. Meaning, you know, things that don't go well are part of the transformation. Things that are not um, without harm, that don't come to resolution are all part of the work. Um, and, and that it's not going to be sort of tied up um, neatly. Um, we will sort of somehow arrive in a school in beautiful British Columbia where the kids all know um, that that might be really far off, but it's still worth striving for. Sometimes I just want to go to that school. <laughs> that would be uh, nice. <laughs> uh, what a, to, just to... I'm thinking about two things um, as you said that. And um, one of my favorite quotes from this book that I think is kind of a call to action is on page 94. She says, to reach a life-sustaining culture and world, we need to live it into being. To me, that's really empowering because I can live that into being. And she also uses on page 88 this phrase that I first heard from Alex Chevron Vinette which is unconditional positive regard. It seems to me like the least we can do for our students, all of our students, every single student, is to hold them with unconditional positive regard. And that that could go a long way towards the creating of belonging and relationships um, that students need and deserve, regardless of what they're bringing with them. Exactly. And I think, you know, that takes conscious community building because when you do that and there are students that will feel like those other students don't deserve that. um, If you don't build that in to the whole climate and culture that this is how we do this and we're not going to push anyone out, um, then uh, you, you have, you have to do it that way. And you have, you have to make sure everyone understands why. And I think that that takes a, a lot of work, um, to sort of peel back these onions and, and help your teachers, your staff, your students understand why you would not, um, push that person out of the community that we are interdependent and we are, and there is the opportunity to celebrate one another and support one another. Um, so yeah. Thanks for letting me talk about this.
Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on and, and digging deep and um, sharing examples from your life and from your school and for introducing me to this book. I have loved it. I'm going to have to reread it, actually, or reread all Fagan. my highlights. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Sylvia Fagan. Um, and also, Mike, thank you for being an example of somebody who's living this into being. I really appreciate that. Well, not all the time, um, but I, I'm doing my best with a lot of help from really great friends and students and folks like you. So thank you. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Mike McGree for appearing on the show and talking with me about Turn This World Inside Out. If you're looking for a copy of Turn This World Inside Out, check your local library. Many thanks to Audrey Holman for all of her behind-the-scenes work on the podcast. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.